Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what are Ontario voters' top priorities when it comes to their vote in the June election? We'll talk about that. Federal government has officially called for an independent public inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act during the blockades and protests earlier this year. Nomi Claire Lazar, professor in public international affairs at the University of Ottawa, will join us to talk about that. And a bombshell report has found Canada's military is not doing enough to address racism and discrimination or to stop white supremacists and other extremists from infiltrating the ranks. What needs to be done? We'll get into that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, talk Ontario politics. Uh, we know the election, of course, in the, is, is the 2nd of June. Uh, polling is all over the place. I mean, you know, do the Conservatives have a big lead? Or is it as closer as, as some of the leaders are suggesting? Well, the, uh, getting right into the swing of things. Yesterday, uh, the uh, NDP announced their policy platform for the upcoming election. Adria Horvath making the announcement to the cheers of her supporters. And then in the following Q&A, she was asked the obvious question. After any political party says, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to give you here. Where's the money going to come from? When it comes to a full costing of our plan, uh, once we see the budget, we'll be able to provide those numbers and you'll you'll definitely get it, uh, get that information before uh, the campaign's over. So sometime during the campaign, we'll be able to provide those details. But not yet. Okay. So let's talk about this in the analysis. And I want to pair that story with uh, uh, the polling that just came out about what Ontario residents' priorities are heading into this election. And to uh, cover all that stuff, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Peggy Nash. Peggy is the former NDP finance critic and author of uh, Women Winning Office, an activist guide to getting elected, which is going to be available well, starting next month, as a matter of fact. Uh, Peggy, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again today. Thanks very much, Bill, and good morning to you. And I uh, hope things are going well with you. Let's look, We'll go in reverse order. I want to talk about the NDP platform, first of all. And uh, then we'll get into the priorities, because I think the, uh, there's a very strong similarity here and some, some uh, parallel paths that I think you're following here. Uh, the, the NDP are usually criticized for saying, look, you're going to spend the sun, the moon, and the stars, and we're not going to be able to pay for it. Those are the usual criticisms. How do you read what, what you heard about the NDP policy platform heading into this election? Is it pragmatic? Is it wishful, wishful for that matter? I, what's your assessment of it? I think it's completely in keeping with the priorities of, of the NDP in general, uh, but I think it's also in keeping with the priorities of Ontarians. And in, I think it is not out of the realm of possibility. I think one could argue that it's pragmatic in terms of the province has the funds to be able to pay for these campaign pledges. But as I understand it, what the NDP is saying is that they need to see the books, uh, which we will get a look at uh, when the budget is released, and then they'll be able to be to be providing a, a full costing of what all these measures will cost, and and therefore at what point they'll be able to reduce the uh, deficit and the debt to GDP ratio. Okay, now let's slide right back into the, into the survey that was done uh, for Global News, which I think covers an awful lot of what you just said, because we've been hearing from a lot of politicians, by the way, federal and provincial, over the last little while, like, the, you know, the key issue for Canadians is the economy. The inflation rate is, is ridiculously high, uh, housing affordability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and okay, we figure, okay, this is going to be about fiscal policy. That's what this is going to be. 
Yet here comes the release of this poll that was done yesterday about Ontario voters. And the number one issue is, as you mentioned, is health care. I don't think anybody saw that coming. Well, I guess we have really a once in a generation opportunity to fix what's been wrong with health care. Having just come through the pandemic, anybody who has uh, had had a loved one in, in long-term care, anybody who's been ill during this period, anybody who has needed elective surgery and has had that put on hold for sometimes years understands that our health care has been underfunded and desperately needs uh, an infusion of cash. It needs more staff. Our long-term care situation has been really tragic with so many seniors losing their lives unnecessarily. Um, and, and, you know, study after study has shown that staff are underpaid. They don't get enough hours to provide stability and stay in one workplace. So they work multiple jobs. And that, of course, spread the pandemic at the height of the infection. And so there is an opportunity now to say, okay, this has, the pandemic has shone a spotlight on what is wrong with healthcare. Let's marshal these resources now and get this fixed so we don't find ourselves stuck in the same spot at some point in the near future. And I know that's been an issue federally for the last little while, uh, which is why I was surprised when uh, Minister Freeland uh, delivered her budget, the federal budget, uh, just a couple of weeks ago now. There was nothing about transfer payments, and they talked about that, and the premiers are all unified. And you don't get the premiers to be unified on too much these days. Uh, but they're all saying, look, we're underfunded here. We need more assistance from the feds to do this. And they didn't talk much about this. Clearly, it's it's going to be a priority, and it is a priority, priority rather, for Ontario voters. And and it, it's all under the umbrella of health care, isn't it, Peggy? It's not just uh, you know just transfer payments. It's long-term care. It's home care. There's a, there's a whole series of, of of very important factors when we look at this. And I, I think you're right. It's like so many other things that we've talked about in the last couple of years now. Uh, this pandemic, you know, maybe didn't cause these problems, but it certainly you know, underscored them. And uh, we're going to be looking to see what they're going to do about it. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, when we look at healthcare, you're absolutely right. It is not just hospital care, not just access to doctors, nurses, etc. It is long term care, it is mental health care. We've also seen a real lack of mental health services. And uh, that's an issue that needs to be addressed, as well as um, things that are missing from healthcare, such as dental care and pharmacare. So I think what I see in this platform is the NDP is trying to take a broad approach and uh, use this opportunity of this, I won't say post-pandemic period, but um, having been two years into this pandemic to say, listen, what, where are the gaps? What are the areas that we really need to address as a society? And uh, I think what they're trying to present is a vision for how Ontario could be a much better place to live by improving our, our broader health care system. In, in your realm of finance, i got to ask you this question, because when I'm looking at the Ipsos re results here, as we mentioned, healthcare at 31% was there, you know, the number one choice uh, for Ontario voters. But taxes are there, too, the, at 24%. Uh, they're concerned about lowering taxes. And the question that I'm sure you've always uh, received uh, from, you know, the past in your political career, too, is how can you spend all the money that the NDP is talking about and still 
deal with taxes, to lower taxes. I mean, they seem to be quite opposite ends of the spectrum here right now. Can you be fiscally responsible and still cover these programs? That's a very good point because you often see conservative governments promise tax cuts, but what they don't tell you is you're going to get less in terms of services and government provided benefits as a result. You can't do both. You have to you have to have the revenue in order to be able to spend it. So uh, so many people today are feeling the pinch of inflation. I think partly that is because wages have not kept up. Uh, they've been fairly flat for far too many years. And we're seeing at the low end of the wage spectrum, all political parties now promising to increase the minimum wage. But I, I think wherever you are on the wage spectrum, you know, I'm talking for, for working and middle class families, people are feeling the pressure of inflation. I would argue that uh, some of the spending issues will also help with the cost of living. So affordable childcare, dental care, uh, pharmacare, these things will also help with affordability. But in addition to that, I think we have to look at uh, those who, who have done exceedingly well over the last few years. While a number of people lost their jobs or worse, lost their lives during the pandemic, some companies, some of the, the large grocery chains, obviously Amazon, some of the social media companies, and some individuals have done exceedingly well. And sometimes even government handouts to companies went right into the pockets of executives and shareholders. So. What, what I heard in that platform released by the Ontario NDP was that for uh, middle and working class families, no tax increase. People are stretched enough. But for those who can afford to pay more, uh, they should be asked to pony up and pay more. And I guess they're not saying how much more or specifically who, but they're waiting to see the books in the upcoming budget to make that determination. One of the other points that uh, Andrea Horvath talked about, uh, just going over some of the bullet points here, holding a public inquiry into the COVID-19 response, meaning the Ontario government's COVID-19 response, no matter who wins this election in June, shouldn't that happen anyway? Yes, you would think so. Uh, not, I, I mean, you, you can look at it in a punitive sense, but you can also just look at it as in a public interest sense. You know, governments of all stripes made decisions in the middle of the pandemic without really having all the facts because no one knew. We didn't know mm -hmm. we were going to get vaccines so quickly. We didn't realize how effective masks could be. I mean, there were a number of, of issues that uh, situations perhaps where governments didn't have all the information. On the other hand, once we had the information, did governments make the best decisions. And I guess I would approach any kind of inquiry as uh, helping us make better decisions for the future. So rather yeah. than punishing what has been done, let's assume the best. People made the best decisions they could, but let's look to the future. And I think Canadians and Ontarians deserve to have that information.
Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it hasn't been more of an issue. I mean, and I, I agree with you, we're not out of it yet, but, you know, this is an opportunity, I guess, to look in the rearview mirror just a little bit. Uh, I mean, football teams do that all the time, right? They play on Sunday, and then <laughs> Monday the coaches get together, and they go over the field and say, okay, here's what we did right, here's what we did wrong, because they got another game coming up. And if there's one this thing that it. we consistent, yeah, yeah and, and we've heard from the, the medical experts here, Peggy, is this is going to happen again, hopefully not, not as severely, but it, we're, we're going to have more, you know, viruses coming around here. We're going to have to deal with them. So I think there should be, uh, and uh, by the way, an independent analysis, not by the government themselves, but by somebody else who can look at this. And uh, I think we as Ontarians have a right to get that information. Yeah, I think it's just, it's it's called public accountability. I mean, yeah. in, in a, in a, a suspicious death, you'd call it an inquest, but this is kind of an inquest of of our our whole approach to handling the pandemic, and it needs credible outside examination. And, you know, sadly, there's so much distrust of science right now. Hopefully, such an examination could could help restore the credibility of of experts in the scientific community. And uh, and just help people come together and say, okay, we're going to make better decisions next time. Because as you say, there will be a next time, whether it's a mutation of this particular virus, or maybe it's in 50 years, it's another virus. Uh, it's it's just part of the, the the global reality that we live in, that there are these viruses that exist, and they're, they're going to continue to attack uh, humans and other creatures. <laughs> I'm, I, again, I want to go back to the Ipsos thing, and we, I know we're going back and forth, but you know, it's an election time, and we need to talk about the issues, especially the ones that matter uh, to Ontarians. Some of the other stuff they hear that they talked about in Ipsos, uh, lowering energy costs, uh, help with what they call day-to-day -day needs. I guess that would be groceries, uh, filling the car, you know, gas, etc., uh, and a number of different things like that. But that all seems to be centered around this wicked inflation that we're all dealing with, which is a global problem, not just an Ontario problem. What tools does the government have at, at hand that, that they can address all of these issues? I mean, what we need to do is bring the cost of living down, really, don't we? Yeah, and as you have said, the, these are complex issues. And usually what happens is, uh, and the Bank of Canada tries to deal with this through... Uh, the the Bank of Canada rate, and it's a very delicate balancing act because if they're too aggressive on raising the Bank of Canada rate, um, you can trigger a recession, which no one wants. That brings pain to everyone. So it's a it's a delicate job for the Bank of Canada to try to moderate somewhat. The, the spending levels and uh, try to temper that inflation down. But there are specific areas that can be addressed. So, for example, fuel costs. And, uh, I mean, again, this is a complex issue right now because of the war, uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, and that there is, you know, people are frantically, Europeans especially, and others are looking for alternatives to Russian fuel so that uh, will increase demand and therefore raise prices. But, uh, you know, we could be much further along in terms of our efforts to reduce our consumption of carbon-based fuels. And I think this is an opportunity to, you know, spur some alternatives um, for for people in terms of better home efficiency, alternatives in transportation, etc. But 
you know, I think that there, you know, one of the huge costs right now is around housing. And I think that is something that in the NDP platform, they're, they're trying to address to some degree through uh, limits, bringing back rent controls, limits on what landlords can charge when there's a change of tenants. Oh, there's a whole long list of things there, aren't there, really? And There's I, a number I, got, of things around housing, yeah. Yeah. we got to leave it there. We're just about out of time in this segment. And as you mentioned, Peggy, I guess we'll pretty much get the idea of the Conservative platform when Mr. Bethlenfalvia delivers their budget in just a few days. <laughs> I look forward to that conversation with you as well. Thanks for joining us today, Peggy. I always enjoy our conversations. Thanks very much, Bill. Take care. Take care. That's uh, Peggy Nash, of course, former NDP finance critic. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we heard yesterday, the uh, federal government has officially called for an independent public inquiry into its use of the Emergencies Act during the blockades of the Canadian border crossings uh, and, of course, in Ottawa earlier this year. Laura Osmond has details. Millions of dollars in trade were halted for days at several border crossings, and the streets of downtown Ottawa were flooded with demonstrators as part of a national convoy of big rigs and trucks protesting COVID-19 restrictions. The Liberal government invoked the Emergencies Act for the first time in history, granting extraordinary temporary powers to police. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the government has established the Public Order Emergency Commission to look at the circumstances that led to the Emergencies Act being invoked. That includes the evolution of the convoy, the impact of funding and disinformation, the economic impact, and efforts of police and other responders before and after the declaration. Laura Osmond, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. So it's going to be interesting to get all that information. It's going to take some time, obviously, to, uh, to get the assessments as to what's going on. Uh, very timely, too, considering the fact that uh, it looks like there's going to be another protest in Ottawa, uh, rolling thunder, uh, I guess mostly motorcycles as opposed to transport trucks this time around. That's going to be happening this weekend. To give us an assessment as to what could happen going forward uh, with this report, so please to welcome back to the program Nomi Claire Lazar, who is a full professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa and author of the book Out of Joint, Power, Crisis, and the Rhetoric of Time. Uh, professor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. Listen, just a point of interest before we get too deeply into this. Uh, I was just looking at some of the comments on social media yesterday after the government announced this. They didn't do this out of the goodness of their heart. This is required by the legislation of the Emergencies Act, isn't it, that that there had to be a follow-up inquiry? That's correct. So under Section 63 of the Emergencies Act, uh, there there is this requirement that a commission is struck quite soon after an emergency resolves. And unlike many uh, commissions of inquiry, they also have to file their report reasonably soon. So within a year of uh, the the end of the emergency. So yes, this was required by law, not uh, done out of the goodness of uh, uh, Trudeau's heart. Uh, and, and as I understand it, as we just heard in that report, uh, this is not just going to be about the Ottawa uh, confrontation, which I think is maybe the best way to describe it, but it has, also has to do with, as you say, the closures of Canadian border crossings, uh, uh, you know, the, the bridge in Windsor, of course, and some Manitoba and Alberta situations as well. Yeah, so so there are four purposes that uh, to, to having an inquiry like this, or four kinds of things that we'd like to see uh, come out of it. And the first is that it's really important that we actually understand what happened. So, of course, we have some of the information, but there was a lot coming at us at the time, and uh, some material that may have been confidential at the time, for example. So having uh, a, a good understanding of how we got to the point where we were in an, an emergency or a crisis is uh, critical, partly so that we can see what might be 
uh, what might be fixable, what we could handle differently next time, where there might be a necessity for new kinds of policy or legislation. So we want to diagnose where the crisis came from uh, so that ideally we can fix it. The second thing is we want to make sure we can hold people to account. So where mistakes were made, we want to figure out where uh, those mistakes took place and who might have responsibility uh, uh, for those. Then it's also, and I think maybe this is even the most important thing, critical that by having a, a commission of inquiry like this, we signal to future leaders that you can't just use the enormous powers in the Emergencies Act and expect to just get away with stuff. So it's kind of, so, so having the inquiry after this uh, emergency also sends a signal for any leader who may use the act in the future that they have to uh, watch themselves because what whatever they do, there's going to be scrutiny afterwards. So that's a critical safety measure. The Prime Minister announced that uh, Justice Paul Rulo, a longtime Ontario judge, uh, is going to be heading this. What what tools is he going to have at his disposal? So under the Inquiries Act. Uh, and basically, he has all so his commission will have all the powers that a court normally does. Uh, so he can uh, 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 subpoena witnesses and information. Uh, and uh, if I understood correctly, he will have it, it will be at his discretion uh, to to decide what kinds of confidential material or material that's normally uh, you know, within cabinet, uh, so it's so it's up to his discretion what to uh, what to request and then what to make public along those lines. So that preserves the independence of the commission. Uh, so he will be able, you know, whatever information he thinks he needs, he will be able to solicit, and then uh, he will uh, table his report before Parliament, and it should be uh, available to Canadians. Uh, I think it's important for us to note that uh, with this kind of thing, we we there there are two two potential uh, problems that could arise. And the first is that when we have commissions of inquiry, we tend to think that, oh, this makes us trust government more because then we're gonna have all this transparency. But sometimes, uh, or it's rare that everybody's satisfied with the outcome. And so sometimes it actually breeds distrust. So we're gonna have to keep our eyes uh, open for that. Uh, uh, the second is that we, it, we tend to want an answer. We want a firm answer. Was it justified? Was it not justified? Could it, you know, could things have been otherwise? And th that assumes that there are facts of the matter which may not exist because we're sort of relying on counterfactuals, like what would have happened? And of course, we don't know what would have happened. So we just, so we, we all, you know, as citizens need to be a bit temperate in our expectations. Uh, so, so hopefully we're going to learn a lot more about what happened. Hopefully we're going to, you know, learn some lessons going forward. But we may not get the firm, clear answers we want, and uh, uh, we, we may be dissatisfied with the outcome. So it's better than nothing, but we shouldn't expect sort of a final uh, conclusion about this situation from this report. And that's, that's an important part. So, so in other words, there will be no, no doors closed to, to, to Justice Rulo uh, if he wants these confidential documents. Uh, he may see them, but he won't necessarily decide that they should be released to the public. I mean, uh, there's all sorts of possible answers for that, you know, security problems, national uh, interest, yada, yada, yada. We've heard all those lists before. Uh, but that shouldn't be a barrier for, for this inquiry, though. 
That's correct. As far as I understand, he can have access to just about anything that uh, because it's at his discretion. And again, I'm not 100 percent certain about this, but this is uh, what what I heard uh, the minister say yesterday. Um, so th- it's at his discretion what he sees, but then it's also at his discretion what might uh, might might be dangerous to release to the public. What we're hoping for here, I guess, uh, when we see the way these things have rolled out in the past, then, Army, is, well, usually the Mueller inquiry, for instance, so, you know, the much-anticipated uh, inquiry by, by Bob Mueller, and we finally released it. He listed a whole thing, a series of things that had happened and some documents, but he never drew any conclusions. There was nothing going forward, no recommendations, which I think really frustrated an awful lot of people. I'm getting the sense from what uh, we heard yesterday in the announcement that it's going to be different for Justice Rulo. Apparently, he's expected to weigh in on the appropriateness and effectiveness of the measures taken. So it sounds as if uh, he's going to render an opinion on this. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. And that does seem to be written directly into into the mandate, into the order and yeah. counsel. Uh, that said, it, it uh, so even though there may be recommendations, or there will be recommendations, and even though he will render judgment, uh, we should also expect that over the course of time, our judgments as citizens may shift as uh, uh, new information becomes available, as uh, you know events transpire. We tend to uh, not, uh, or we we tend to sort of change our view of events as history continues. So so this this we should get a lot out of this report, and we should expect that our judgments will continue to shift and change over the course of time. And he's covering both sides of the fence here, as I understand it anyway. The role of uh, domestic and foreign funding, including uh, crowdsourcing and things of this nature, social media, the impact of sources of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, So it sounds as if he's not going to leave any stone unturned here. Yes. And in fact, this, you know, we might we might see this uh, thinking about it forward looking and and not backward looking as an opportunity for us to really uh, uh, to, to have the sort of reckoning around these issues that are an enormous risk to our democracy more generally. And from that perspective, this report could turn out to be uh, critically important as we think about what to do next uh, to preserve our, our democracy, not just in Canada, but elsewhere. Uh, to satisfy our appetite for knowledge, I guess, uh, about this thing, uh, can we expect that, uh, that the Justice Rule is going to give us updates or are we just going to have to wait for his final report? Most of this, as far as I understand, should take place in public, just like a regular court. Okay. Uh, so, of course, of course, not the confidential materials. But uh, I would imagine that, uh, and and I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure about this, but from everything I've seen, that anyone who who wants should be able to uh, follow along uh, uh, as much as as they like and see what the submissions are and what the testimony is, etc. And apparently, this is like I'm glad you mentioned this. Going to be open to the public. As I understand it as well, uh, yes, he's going to call witnesses and he's going to ask for documentation and, and things of this nature. But I, I understand also that there's going to be an opportunity for, uh, I don't know about members of the public, but certainly uh, some of the elected officials that were involved in this to have their say, whether they were for it, against it. Uh, I would imagine Jason Kennedy is going to want to weigh in on this. Uh, Kennedy, rather, the Alberta Premier, because he uh, didn't support the, the Measures Act in, initially and had some concerns. I, we got everything under control. So uh, I, I would imagine, well, because it was Windsor, Doug Ford's going to have a, an opportunity uh, to testify and to stay his five cents worth here, too, I would think. So it's it's going to be all encompassing. Yes, absolutely. And and from that perspective, uh, so commissions of inquiry have been going on in parliamentary democracies for you know five six hundred years, and we and and these are important processes, important aspects of 
uh, the way democracy works, just precisely for that reason, that there are opportunities for uh, people to weigh in, sometimes members of the interested members of the public to weigh in, in democratic discourse around contentious issues. What's going to happen uh, when we come, or more importantly, I guess, when the, the inquiry comes to this cross-section of getting information, uh, butted up against uh, the fact that some people have been charged and those trials have not yet happened. Uh, is there concern here that, that that could have an impact, a negative impact on, on justice being served in, in those situations? So uh, the the if you read the uh, order in council, uh, it specifically says that the commission needs to be uh, cautious around ongoing uh, criminal and civil investigations, and uh, it must uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but must behave appropriately so that they don't in any way prejudice uh, those. Uh, uh, those those cases, and that also the commission keep uh, uh, all interested parties uh, apprised of anything that comes up that may impact those investigations. That's that's going to be a rather delicate uh, exercise, isn't it? Uh, yes, I, I mean, as, as we understand it from the charges that were laid against at least a few of these people, uh, they were directly involved in, in what some people consider to be some of the illegal activity here. Uh, I, I'm not sure how they're actually going to be able to, to address that uh, without stating an opinion on this and some sort of prejudice. So it's, it's uh, I'm sure the lawyers will be a, a phone call away. It is can we say this? What can we do this, et cetera? It's going to take some massaging, I would think. I think you're precisely right. Uh, and it, 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 especially if some of those cases drag on in the courts, uh, that, you're, you, you know, that's very uh, well noted that, that that's going to be a point of tension. So it'll be interesting to see how, uh, how this is negotiated. And of course, normally with the, these kinds of commissions sometimes drag on for much longer. But the fact that the court cases are likely to take place at the same time that this commission is uh, very rapidly and uh, engaged in its work does suggest that that they may run up against some hurdles. So let's hope that uh, that that they have some uh, mechanisms in place uh, to to deal with this, because, yes, that could certainly be a, a big point of tension. Uh, when the government says they're going to be forthcoming with all the necessary information that the justice requires, requests, rather, can we take them at their word? Because they have a track record sometimes of saying, oh, no, 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 that one, you can't, you can't look at that. Uh, with some of the other inquiries that have uh, gone forward over the last four or five years. Uh, but if this is an inquiry, as you mentioned, uh, not unlike uh, uh, some sort of a trial, I suppose, can they be held in, in contempt? This is not a parliamentary committee that's being set up here, is it? I don't believe they can. So, so, so they are entitled to hold back certain kinds of information if they think it would be uh, detrimental for uh, national security, et cetera. And so I would would be surprised if we see them uh, ponying up with everything they're asked uh, to share, certainly before the public. Uh, so perhaps that material will be shared with uh, Justice Rouleau, but not with the public. It's, it's you know, we'll have to see what happens. But uh, it, it, we should keep in mind that in some cases, in some cases, that's actually appropriate because we do want cabinet to be a space in which free uh, exchange of uh, ideas and debate can take place uh, without the uh, cabinet members having the you know, having to self-censor basically we want that space of, of open discussion but of course the, the the drawback there is that it's difficult for us to know and to judge as citizens what they're holding back rightfully and what they what they ought to be sharing without knowing what it is um, so this is this is a, a perennial problem with uh, 
the, the assessment of emergency action, because very often it does come along with these, these sort of pockets of secrecy. Uh, and so I will be surprised if they share everything willingly. And I hope that what they hold back, they're holding back for uh, the right reasons. This back and forth has already started here. The uh, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, uh, which, by the way, were opposed to this. And actually, I guess that's a pending court hearing, too, uh, because I think they were actually trying to sue the government over the uh, use of the act. They're suggesting that this uh, justice inquiry is should just focus on the government action and, and not talk about the protesters themselves. In other words, it shouldn't be a priority. I, I, I want to get your opinion on that. It's, you can't look at that in isolation, can you? Because this is a cause and effect thing. Yeah, the government did this, but it's because they perceived that this was a good problem or, or this was about to happen or this did happen. We, we need the whole picture here, don't we? I completely agree. And that's not only because we can't understand the actions of the government without understanding what prompted them, but also because in any uh, uh, post hoc inquiry into an emergency, we want to know how to prevent future emergencies from arising. So it's always better not to have the emergency in the first place than to have to deal with it with these, uh, these exceptional powers. And we can't, we can't do that unless we understand what happened. Uh, So absolutely, it is absolutely critical that uh, that this commission look into the circumstances that brought the emerge, you know, that brought about the crisis that that uh, the government claims required the use of the Emergencies Act. That's absolutely critical. That said, uh, from a political perspective, of course, we can see how, you know, couching the government's response in a report about what happened may kind of frame things up in a way that's quite favorable to the government. Uh, so, so we need to be attentive to that, but we can't not do it. We have to understand what the context was in order to understand whether the government's response was appropriate and in order to understand, uh, to the extent we can, how these kinds of situations might be preventable in the future. It's interesting to, to see how this is going to roll out. Now, just We should remind our listeners, uh, this is separate apart from the parliamentary committee uh, that was struck to look into this as well. well. And you talk about, you know, the influence of politics. Well, it, that probably covers that off, you know, because the opposition parties, of course, in the minority government are going to have a number of members of that inquiry as well. Uh, I don't know uh, what the timelines are like for, for the release of both of these reports, uh, but it's going to be an interesting exercise, isn't it, to compare and contrast what the parliamentary committee said, sees and, and, and what this inquiry is going to see at the same time. Yes, although we should be aware of the fact that the purpose of the parliamentary committee under the Act, so this is section 62 of the Act, uh, is to keep an eye on the specific actions that the government or the specific measures that the government has taken uh, and review those. Uh, so that scope is is much, much more limited than yeah. uh, the scope of the uh, of the Commission of Inquiry. Um, and, and as you say, it is uh, you know multi-party and it, it spans the House and the Senate. Uh, they are in fact meeting today. Uh, that uh, the parliamentary committee. So so maybe we'll hear something over the next couple of days from them. Uh, but I expect that 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 committee will take a much, much more uh, limited role, that there won't actually be all that much for them to do, particularly in light of the fact that this uh, commission of inquiry has now been struck. Yeah, exactly. A lot of questions. And I, I really appreciate your time today to clarify a few points for us. So, Professor, as always, thank you so much for this. Uh, hopefully we can talk again soon as we get more information coming down the road. Indeed. Thanks very much. And I wish you and your listeners a good day.
And to you too. Thanks again. Uh, Naomi Claire Lazar, who is, of course, a full professor in public and international affairs at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another report that uh, was released yesterday, uh, well, it's, it's sending some shockwaves across Ottawa, uh, and uh, it's, it's rather problematic. Systemic racism is a major problem in the Canadian military. This uh, scathing new report on racism in the Canadian Armed Forces says the military is not doing enough to detect and prevent white supremacists and other extremists from infiltrating its ranks. The report released by Defence Minister Anita Anand yesterday morning and says she is committed to addressing each and every one of these issues. As Minister of National Defence and a racialized woman, I am strongly committed to building institutions where Canadians from all backgrounds are included, welcomed and empowered. Well, where do we go from here? And, and well, well, how are they going to act to this? And how are they going to react to this? Uh, so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. David Hoffman. Uh, Dr. Hoffman is an associate professor of sociology with the University of New Brunswick and a senior research affiliate with the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security, and Society. Uh, professor, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thank you so much for the time today. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be here. I, I always have such great conversations with you. Yeah, I, I enjoy your time with us to do and, and offering your expertise on this. Uh, as the report was released yesterday, uh, were you shocked by the results, Professor, or does this confirm what maybe we already knew? Well, I wasn't shocked per se. Um, this is something that's been brewing um, for several years now, or uh, maybe even more more uh, grounded in reality for, for a decade or more. I myself um, am part of a, a large research project funded by the, the Department of National Defense to look at uh, hateful conduct within the ranks. And uh, as the um, uh, news cycle has, has been reporting on for, for several years now, there's a, a problem with uh, sexual harassment within the ranks. So there's, there's mm-hmm. something um, uh, systemically wrong, as the report suggests, within the Canadian Armed Forces that uh, they are trying to address, which isn't, which isn't an easy thing to address, especially when you, you have 100,000 people involved with the Department of National Defense. So, so I wasn't shocked, uh, but I'm, I'm, I was actually gratified and glad. It's one of these, these uh, steps and one of these, these overt ways that uh, I think the Canadian Armed Forces are, are trying to rectify this problem. It's bad the problem is there, but, uh, I mean, they're taking steps. One of the lines that jumped out at me, and I'm sure you saw this one as well yesterday, Professor, it, it says racism in Canada is not a glitch in the system. It is the system. They're not pulling any punches here, are they? No, um, and, and that's in line with, with contemporary research in the area that uh, in, in uh, racism and systemic dis- discrimination. I mean, this is a problem endemic to, to Western society. Um, here in Canada, it, it manifests most uh, poignantly with, with um, systemic racism against Indigenous peoples as well as people of colours, where, as in other countries, it's, it's more uh, African-American discrimination or uh, other Indigenous nations discrimination. So this is something that, that, that's uh, rooted in Canadian history, if we're going to be uh, honest with ourselves, from, from uh, I mean, colonial times onwards. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that statement. And they did touch on, on what you just mentioned here about the sexual misconduct. Uh, another line here says, although the stories of sexual misconduct within the Department of National Defense and Canadian Armed Forces have led the media to focus uh, in that and over the last couple of months, sexual misconduct is a symptom of a bigger ailment, a toxic environment within both the military and civilian workplaces. Uh, it talks about how widespread this actually is. 
Yeah, it's it's rooted um, uh, radical feminism and, and and mainstream feminism as well uh, points out that uh, points out and, and highlights what's called the patriarchy, which are um, masculine um, systems that are woven uh, within our society that discriminate against women, and within the uh, Canadian Armed Forces, which is by its very nature a a uh, toxic. Well, I wouldn't go so far to say. Well, I would. Hmm. I'm vacillating here. It is toxic masculine <laughs> to a certain degree, but it emphasizes masculine qualities, right? Soldiers fighting, uh, um, uh, ruggedness, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, therefore, it's built into um, what we as Canadians think of, or, or we could say Western society thinks of as, as what it means to be a good soldier. And unfortunately, it comes with uh, this this uh, mentality of of um, masculine supremacy or or, mas- or dominance or so on and so forth. So it, it, it's this difficult uh, balancing act uh, of of cultivating um, what are essentially uh, uh, people who are are trained to be violent to to engage in, in traditionally aggressive and masculine behaviors while while trying to respect the the uh, I mean basic human rights of women who also want to serve their country. Well, that's an interesting statistic, and, and that's something that jumped out at me, too. 71% of military members are white men, compared to 39% of civilian workforce. And that's not to suggest that all white males are racist, but, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's, it makes you wonder. And by the way, that number uh, goes all the way up to about 90% as you go up the chain of command uh, to senior officers. Uh, white males are dominating this. Uh, and, and it brings in the whole cost, uh, concept of white supremacy uh, and, and I guess it's a chicken and egg comment here, isn't it, Professor? Actually, you know, it, 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 is this the Canadian military right now? Is it attracting white supremacists, or, or do people become white supremacists after they get in there? I mean, it, it, it's there apparently, but have they decided on what the root cause is yet? Oh, you've you've just opened up a a, a box of a million comments and a million questions that uh, that uh, there's no easy answer. Um, long story short, and I'll, I'll try and summarize this as quickly sure. as I can. Um, the uh, obviously the Canadian Armed Forces, as a Canadian institution, um, is doing all they can to to root out and and dissuade uh, white supremacists from joining their ranks. Uh, because as as a uh, an institution where we Canadians it, we we're, we're essentially allowing them and, and investing in them the right to engage in violence on our behalf for our defense, and that requires that we uh, uh, public confidence in them as an institution, and we can't be confident in an institution if they actively courted white supremacists. So, I mean, uh, they, they are, are pushing them away actively and hard as they can. The problem is there's this, this fetishization of military life and culture by white supremacists who see it as uh, either uh, like the idea of, of a, a dramatized, uh, you know, soldier army of one, uh, masculine, uh, grounded in his roots, defense of his country, so on and so forth. And um, uh, also, they, um, there's a recognition, and this is something uh, right-wing researchers have observed, there's a recognition of the um, skills and the skill sets that the military can offer some of these, these um, groups, particularly the ones that are uh, they're called accelerationists who are trying to precipitate some sort of violent action. So uh, it's kind of there's a push and pull factor here that's that's very complex and still needs to be studied a little bit more. As for the the um, majority of of um, uh, the command being uh, white men, I, this is a, a legacy of of uh, just white masculine hegemony in in Canada. 
Um, and it's something, it's something that, uh, again, it's, it's a problem, but I'm uh, gratified and, and uh, happy to see that at least there's, there's uh, internal uh, interest in this and there's, there's reports coming out on it. So uh, it, the problem isn't solved, but at least it's being addressed. Uh, it is, too. And, and to talk about the severity there, they do say that uh, a common thread here is that membership in extremist groups is growing within the military, becoming increasingly covert. Uh, technological advances like the darknet and encryption methods uh, pose significant challenges for them. So they're aware of it, uh, but you're right. This is uh, very, very difficult to, to pinpoint and say this is what we're going to do. But there's an interesting aspect of this that I wanted to get your comment on as well. We Certainly, I guess most of us uh, professors, we heard these stories about sexual misconduct and, and now, of course, about white supremacy in the Canadian military. We tend to think of it as a civil rights, human rights issue, and and there's certainly validity to that, and that does need to be addressed. But the report also talks about the impact it's having on our military capabilities. Uh, recruitment mm-hmm. is down because people are hearing these stories and said, I don't want to, I'm not joining. I, I don't want to be part of that. And we've just made an increased uh, commitment militarily now to NATO. We need bodies. Uh, there's a lot of positions that are still unfilled now, and that could put us in a rather precarious position militarily. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's it's one of these things that, that I, I like to liken to uh, a surgery, right? If there's uh, a metaphorical cancer within the the Canadian Armed Forces. You you have to go in and, and excise it, which is painful, which which uh, requires uh, which will hurt the 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 host, I suppose, to use the biological analogy here. Um, but it needs to be done, and um, it uh, I think I think it's I mean the timing is isn't great as 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 you're saying, but I, I think it's something that that uh, it's a, a growing pain. It's uh, something that that uh, the Canadian Armed Forces needs to do in order to uh, change uh, the institution and the institutional culture. Um, the other thing too is is uh, this is something that, that I think can be mitigated through uh, proper PR, through proper um, through proper uh, recruitment practices, and um, other uh, initiatives as well. So uh, I mean, short term pain, long term gain is is my 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 answer here. And, and, and that seemed to be what the minister was saying, is that, you know, this is not going to be shoved in somebody's bottom drawer now. There's, they're going to act on a number of these things. But I, I guess the question a lot of us would have then is, okay, how are they going to get address this? How are they going to do this? Um, I mean, is it going to be done internally? Uh, because then, obviously, they're opening themselves up to the uh, accusation that, well, this is people investigating themselves. Maybe the people at the top mm-hmm. that would, uh, did those investigations. We saw this with the sexual misconduct idea. That, you know, really? that there was... To, to, you can't get a, an objective opinion from somebody who's involved in it because they may actually be part of the cause. And uh, maybe I'm part of that good PR here, but uh, as I mentioned previously, um, I'm part of a, a three-year um, funded project by D&D to look at hateful conduct and, and give them mm-hmm. an outsider's perspective um, of, of what's happening within their ranks. I know of other colleagues who are engaged in other similar, uh, who who have, uh, who are essentially being uh, contracted for their expertise to, to give an outsider's look. Uh, I think, uh, and I can't speak with any authority here because I'm I'm not a, a member of D and D itself, but uh, I think that they uh, are aware of this. Uh, it, it's I think I, I dare say I think they've learned a little bit from their uh, the problem with the the sexual misconduct um, uh, probe. And uh, I think the uh, approach is is blended. So uh, there has to be an internal uh, um, probe of some sort because it, it, in, uh, the army, in and of itself, is 
um, a, a an institution that that where, where there's insiders and outsiders and people outside of the culture don't really understand what it's like to be in the military and vice versa. So it needs some of that self-reflection, but at the same time, uh, I, I think they are. Um, I, I could say with with a relative amount of confidence that that they are engaging the appropriate individuals to to uh, give it an outside look and make suggestions. So whether it's successful, uh, it's too early to tell. Um, but I, I think I think they are taking this quite seriously from from a, a PR optics uh, approach as well as, as from a, an institutional cultural approach. With the work that you've done on the committee so far and, and your, your research into this, uh, this is a, a, a very concerning report. It's a very troubling report, certainly, within the Canadian military. It, but is this a Canadian problem or is this a problem with military in in other countries as well? I mean, uh, th- there has to be some commonalities here. I, you know, I, I, and I'm not trying to excuse, you know, the perpetrators and those who may be uh, part of the problem within the Canadian military, but is it going on in other parts of the world too, being reported uh, or not investigated? I, that's up to those individual na- uh, sovereign nations. But is this a, a much bigger problem than, than we seem to think and that has not been covered in this report? The answer is both. It's both a Canadian problem and a military problem. There, there's. I, I know for a fact there are similar problems in other uh, militaries and in, in mm-hmm. amongst our allies and elsewhere. And it, it goes back to some of those um, popular conceptions of, of what it means to be a, a soldier and, and the, the masculine culture that surrounds the army. And and uh, I, I don't. Uh, this is you've stumped me with this question. I don't know how how our allies are addressing this i know it is a problem it's it's something that uh, is on our to-do list and requires going through appropriate channels to, to get a better understanding of this but it's a canadian problem as well because uh, i mean it's for the the sole fact that it's happening here in canada right it it wouldn't it wouldn't be uh if if we as a, a culture uh, abhorred these types of of, of uh, this type of conduct within these types of situ- situations it, it would never have cropped up anyways so to say, oh, it's just, it's not a Canadian issue would be putting on blinders. So it's 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 uh, it's like any other complex social problem. It's a, it's a blend of both. So it, it has to do with with um, with uh, toxic masculine culture within Canada, within Canadian conceptions of the military, and within uh, general military culture itself. Yeah, maybe I, we're just about out of time, but maybe the, the, the one line of the report here that maybe encapsulates everything you've just said here is uh, white supremacist groups actively seek individuals with prior military training and experience or conversely encourage individuals to enlist in uh, the military yeah. to gain access to specialized training tactics and equipment. So it, this is this is not a new problem. So this is uh, information that had been gained and, and obtained earlier, too. But it yeah. seems to be a growing I think, problem. I think they're citing they're citing my, my network's research. Actually, I think that's okay. straight from, there you go. from the stuff we did. <laughs> Sorry to toot my own horn, but someone's got it. No, no, listen, that's, <laughs> it's, it's valuable information, Professor. Always a, a pleasure to have you on the program to get your insights into this. Uh, continued good luck with your research, and uh, hopefully we can talk again as we start to see the government and, of course, the military themselves act on some of these things. Thank you. I appreciate being on. Okay, always a pleasure. Dr. David Hoffman uh, from the University of New Brunswick. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.